The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in, and I'm excited to bring this episode to you today. Amy Edmondson is on the show. She's Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management. I've been wanting to have her on the show for a long time. She wrote one of my favorite books, The Fearless Organization. It's all about creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation, and growth. It's what she's famous for, really. She works. Her work on psychological safety has been truly groundbreaking, and her blueprint on creating a fear-free culture is essential. And I agree 100%. She argues that for organizations to be able to thrive in today's knowledge economy in which new ideas, critical thought are essential to success, you've got to have this environment where people feel safe to speak up. And as a pilot, that is my world. Particularly since the early 70s, the United States has led this whole idea of creating this kind of safe environment where it's not your right to challenge, it's your obligation inside the cockpit. And that's what her book and what she believes Amy stands for. She's explored also other concepts of teaming and dynamic work environments and demonstrated how cross-organizational teaming can impact the building of smart cities. She's written a whole bunch of books, but the one I'm most familiar with is The Fearless Organization. In fact, I would say it should be mandatory reading if you're interested in leadership, particularly in an organizational setting. You have to understand it. And I was a little intimidated. You know, usually when I read books from leadership professors and with tons of research and data, um, I'm usually scared off by them because I kind of glaze over into all the research. But the way that Amy Edmondson writes is so clear and so straightforward. I really do appreciate her writing style. And again, it is it is one of my favorite books, The Fearless Organization. And I think it should be a go-to for everybody. And I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. This just chock full of leadership nuggets. And she's just an authentic and true, genuine soul. And it was an honor to have her on the show. The show is brought to you by my services. If you're looking for leadership training, speaking, or coaching, I'm your guy. Particularly what I'm specifi- or specializing in with today's separation and sheltering in place and we're all doing everything on zoom i've been doing that for the past three and a half years with multiple organizations 30 plus organizations i've taken teams through my legacy legacy leader blueprint course 20 videos broken up into four modules and the way that we would do this is you got four modules starting with module one is about leadership fundamentals module two is about leading yourself module three is leading others and the fourth module is transformational leadership topics or advanced leadership topics and I know it's busy out there. Everybody's got tons of things to do, a lot of uncertainty. And so we spread this out over about a two-month period. So I give each team, usually what works best is you get about 10, 10 of your team members. You're looking to plant these ideas of leadership in their head, trying to instill this culture of leadership in your organization. This is a perfect tool. $500 a seat so it doesn't break the bank. And like I said, I'll give you two weeks, the team members, two weeks to watch one module. 
It's plenty of time. They can do it in their spare time, watch it a couple times, and then inside of those two weeks, I'll meet with you virtually over Zoom for an hour and a half and facilitate a discussion with the team members over each module. So we'll do that four times. And we'll actually do it five times because I do an introductory get-to-know-each-other session. And so five sessions with me, 20 videos, broken up into four modules, takes about two months, doesn't take a lot of time, hour and a half every two weeks, on Zoom. And like I said, I've taken 30-plus organizations through this, over 300 people. And if it's you're looking to plant those seeds of leadership inside your organization, check it out. Legacy Leader Blueprint. Go to doseofleadership.com to learn more. You can reach me on the contact form, or you can email me directly at richarddoseofleadership.com. We can set up a time to have a conversation to see if it's a right fit for you and your organization. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get on with the conversation with Amy Edmondson here on Dose of Leadership. Well, Amy, I'm so thrilled to have you on Dose of Leadership. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I've been a, a huge fan of, of your work. I mean, the, just I always operate on a level of, of, of kind of more um, what I call the Marine Corps mindset of kind of more just straightforward. And, and the, the brain on you is just um, impressive. I'm always impressed by how you just <laughs> the dive in and the research and everything else. And I, I just love your work. Just wanted to start off with that. Well, thank you very much. I have to challenge the brain part. I think all I've <laughs> really been doing over these years is observing. And I go I go into workplaces and observe what happens. And I observe in all sorts of different ways, including directly, but also including the use of surveys and interviews. And you see things and, yeah. and you just develop an appreciation for not only what happens, but more importantly, the profound differences across workplaces. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I relate to that, but I guess I'm always impressed by someone like yourself and I, and I can do that too, but then to put it on paper and put it into a book is always the thorn in my side. That is always just the, the, the sword that's hanging over me. I'm like, well, you just write this book and I don't know why it's so difficult for me. It's just, I'm always impressed when someone can observe, like you say, then put it down in cohesive thought and logical sequence. And I just think the way that you write your books are, I just think it's just, it's so easy to read, I guess. And as well, it, anyway, so I just thank you. That's the biggest compliment you could give me. I, I work very hard at writing, you know, I, I think yeah. writing, writing is a particular form of torture because yes. you, you sort of do it alone and you know, it's not right. You know, it's not good enough. And you just have to live with the fact that you're putting things on paper that are bad and then go over it and over it and over it until it's okay. Right? So the, the, the thing that people, I think many people don't understand about writing is that nobody writes, well, maybe some people do, I certainly don't, but just beautifully, you know, you sit down and you type and there it is. You have to just be willing to put that, you know, that crap on the page and then come back, take a deep breath and start cleaning it up. Well, that gives me some hope because, I mean, I guess I intuitively, I know that or instinctively know that because I've talked to enough authors, authors and people like yourself, but it is, it's just so physically, it just hurts my head if that even makes sense. It just hurts. You know, it, it is one of the most torturous things for me to do, but that gives me hope that, okay, <laughs> so I'll just go back and go through the torture and realize and do it yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's hard and it should be hard. And here's why thinking is very multidimensional. Yeah. You know, you're going in several directions at once. Every everything is connected to several other things, 
And yet writing by necessity has to be linear. And so, you know, make, you know, getting the words to sort in the sentences to line up and, and create meaning is, is definitely challenging. Yeah. Well, that good. It gives me hope. And I like the way that you said it. You're right. That's why it is so difficult because I guess, because my brain is, is like the, what is it? Who's the analogy? It's like the, the, the double barreled, double fisted monkey drinking, you know, sitting there like my mind just goes everywhere. And then to try to put it in a linear fashion is, is probably, that's why it's so painful. Exactly. Yeah. I, the, the, the fearless organization resonated deeply with me. And we were talking a little bit before the recording, primarily because I'm a professional aviator and, and we live and breathe, um, that aspect of the business. I don't think people fully appreciate that the hardest part of, of my job at this level of aviation that I'm in and for the better part of my career has been to create this psychologically safe environment. It's not the, the technical or, or tactical piece of the job that's actually pretty easy. It is very hard and it keeps me awake at night because that's how more most people have been killed is because it, there wasn't a psychologically safe environment. That's what led to the fatality or the mishap. And that's something that has interested me for a couple of decades. I, I remember when I first learned about cockpit resource management or CRM and, and learned about the tremendous job that the aviation industry did to, to work with the people side of it. And, and through, and you know more about this than I do, but through the analysis of various accidents and of course the, the black box recordings, it became quite clear that the challenge was in the interpersonal. It was yeah. people not speaking up. It was people not listening. And then of course that became mission critical. How do we fix this? How do we address it? And and you and your colleagues have done such a spectacular job making that a reality. It is, it's frightening when you study. The, 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 of course, that's what we do. And, and it's like almost everything you're constantly going to training and retraining. You're constantly thinking about it. even when we're up there flying in, in those long hours over the, over the ocean and you're sitting there, you're always thinking about the what ifs and worst case. But you're always mm. – I mean I, I don't think – it really is the exhausting part of the job is to to make sure that we're communicating because you don't know – the worst stressful part of the job is like you don't know who you're showing up to the dance with. It's like a blind date. And so <laughs> you you literally like, am I going to like this person or not? And, you know, it could be a wonderful three days, you know, great conversations and having a good time or you could be – just don't click and this person's a jerk and you guys don't get along. <clears throat> but that still doesn't assuage you from the responsibility of what's going on back there. I don't care if you're a jerk or or you and I are, are drinking buds. I'm not going to let you land with the gear up. I'm not going to let you crash into a mountain. I'm not going to let you do something stupid. And that that's the mindset that everybody has to have. And amazingly, sometimes you do get – it's rare now. You know, you, you talk back when I started first started flying 30 years ago, you would get some of these older guys that came from that. The captain's always right pre CRM, and it's starkly different. You can see. I mean, those those people are kind of dinosaurs now. You rarely get an individual where it's like you know, shut up and sit on your hands. And you know, I'm the experienced one here. That you you rarely ever see that at all. A wise a wise uh, captain is not going to behave that way. No, no, no. Because no. his or her own own you know own life is is um, on the line. Not to mention the the many hundreds of passengers you might have aboard. So it is, yeah, it's an astonishing culture change. And it gives me hope that 
other industries can do similar things. And, you know, this point about, um, you know, you might, you don't have to like the guy, you don't have to become best friends with your, your new work partner, but you do have to coordinate and collaborate effectively. Yeah. Right? That, that becomes, that's what, that's what it's all about. And so I distinguish between, you know, work relationships and, and genuine friendships. I'm not saying you can't have genuine friendships at work. Of course you can, thank goodness. But the the um, minimal sort of work relationship is one in which I have a very real appreciation for what you're trying to get done, for what you bring, the skills, the background, the concerns, and and for what you're up against. You know, and that's it. I, I need to know your goal, your skills, and your concerns. And we and you need to know that about me. And we're off and running. And we need to have a respectful interaction. Yeah, I'm kind of jumping ahead to kind of some of the solutions, but when you when you get to in your book, but I, I think it's so critical and what I've what motivates me is I think a, a large part or a large um part of the solution is to create this kind of um oh larger intent or purpose, I think is is kind of the key. Does that make sense? In other words, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, when we go to work I'm not interested in, like you said, being your friend and everybody getting along. I think th- that always bugs me that we try to create these in- these happy environments. I want environments where people feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. And I think that's where the attention should be made. And in-, in the Marine Corps, we called it commander's intent. If I focused on the the why and the purpose, then you are going to be that much more engaged, I guess. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And in-, in fact, that's uh, music to my ears. It's it's, it's all about, I mean, I, I think all of us, I think all adults want to be part of something larger than ourselves. And we intuitively know we can't do that alone. We need to be, we need to be working with, about, and for others. And, and that's where, you know, that's not only meaning, I think it's fundamentally joyful. I agree. Yeah. And, and, that means, and you and you talk about this in the book. Of, it's not about when you create a psychologically safe space. It's not about making sure everybody feels comfortable and happy. Mm. It's not about bringing foosball tables into the break room and you know bringing your pet to work <laughs> and all yeah. that other stuff. It's yeah. a it is it, it's about creating a brutally honest place, and that's not comfortable. But that's okay, right? Because it's about I, I guess I look at business. I mean, I wish more people looked at it as as life and death. Meaning, there are lives on the line, and I don't care if you're an accounting firm or you're making toys or you're making respirators to whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all important. There's still lives on the line, and I think sometimes, generally, we miss that piece of it. Am I looking at it too? Is that too know, stark or brutal? You know, does that not make at sense? all. Not at all. Let, let me, uh, you know, I'll push back on the word brutal or brutally honest okay. because I think we psychologically we we shy away from brutality naturally, That's true. yeah, um, or at least we hope naturally, uh, and and yet you're absolutely right. We it, it's got to be just candid and out there. I wonder if it helps to say, you know, uh, uh, compassionately candid right i mean or 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 um, i know you're saying yeah you know caring candor because it's in some ways if we could all get it through our heads that 
being candid is a form of caring. You know, when I sugarcoat it for you, I am not showing you respect. That's right. I'm saying, I don't think you can take it. I don't think you can take the truth. And by the way, I'm also implicitly saying, I'm pretty sure my take is right. And and in fact, I've got to tell you what I think and what I see, but I also have to recognize that I may be missing something. Right. And the only way for me to learn and for you to learn is for both of us to be respectfully candid, right? It, to be respectful enough of each other's, uh, you know, skills and and background and and desire to do the right thing, that we're willing to say what we really think, and get help in filling in the gaps. Yeah, I like the res- respectfully candid is, is much better than brutally honest because you're right. The word br- brutal does denote, you know, I'm walking in, you know, almost like Patton with my chrome yeah. helmet and you know, crop riding pants and, yep, you know, but you're right. It's like it's having this kind of, look, I want you to, it's like I want my wife to tell me if I got food in my teeth or I got bad breath before I walk out the door. It's hard of for course. her to, it's hard for her to tell me I have bad breath. And it's hard. But it's easier for her than for a stranger. Right. And so then you think, well, wait a minute, why is that? And it's in part because there's a an assumption, we hope, a deep one, that we're in it for the long haul. Right. So, you know, even if we have a, a sort of a the temporary, you know, assault of, oh, I didn't I didn't want to hear that. Uh, but but we we can we can deal with it because we know that it comes from a place of commitment to our mutual growth, right? And our mutual, yeah. you know, preservation out there in the world where other people might um, react badly to our bad breath. So, <laughs> right. you know, we know, we're, we, in other words, we know that the intentions are good, even if the actual words can feel hurtful or undesired. Yeah. So it's two parts as, as the, the receiver um, you need to be, and this is particularly crucial for the leaders of the organization. You have to have, the willingness to be open to receive that candor and how you respond to it is so crucial, right? And I know as a as it a, really is. Yeah. As a captain, and, someone telling me I'm about to land with my gear up, how I react <laughs> is so critical in, in the future, you know, how the rest of that trip's gonna go, right? Yes. And and uh spoiler alert, first response is thank you. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for that clear line of sight. Now <laughs> fixing yeah. it. Right. Yeah. So Absolutely. You didn't want to hear it really because you didn't want to have made an error, but you did. So fix it, move on. Yeah. And then when you tell them thank you, and like, oh my God, I couldn't have done this. And that's happening. I can think of a handful of times where, you know, where that's, he's like, God, you're afraid to speak up because of that whole, that whole psychologically or that psychology around not speaking up is so powerful. I mean, I, I've done it and I, we, we've all done it. We've all sat silent okay. in those critical moments and being kicked herself wondering why we didn't um but if you respond to that that senior person says oh my god thank you for saving me you realize you're it just shows you how valuable you are valuable valuable you are in the organization absolutely it's like thank goodness you came to work today exactly you, you know you you know in those moments there's there's never a more clear indication that you've made a contribution you know, when someone, and it doesn't have to be a, a plane that's in, at risk, you know, but just when someone thanks you for that little bit of effort or, or courage it took to 
push back against something, um, that's, you know, that's what makes it all worthwhile. And, and, and more importantly, that keeps it going. That keeps it coming. That means you think, oh, okay, that wasn't so bad. I'll do it again. Yeah. You got some great examples in your story. I'd kind of like for the, for the listener's sake and kind of give a little insight of the book, like so, so many great examples in the beginning of where organizations kind of um, failed. Aviation-wise, of course, you talk about the Tenerife issue with the two 747s, uh, you know, collided on that, that runway. And, yes, uh, it's a classic. And yeah, and that, and then, but organizationally, the, um, what were, what were some of your favorite examples uh, in your book that you give? And then both positive and negative. I love the positive of the Barry Whalemiller. I've had Bob Chapman on this show and I just think oh, they're, good. they're a fascinating organization. Aren't they? He's fantastic. Well, I have to, I have to, um, I have to admit, um, and, and I hate to do this, but I have to admit that it was easier to find the the negative stories than the positive <laughs> yeah, right. ones. And you know that's in part because um, what what uh, what you and I are talking about here of respectful candor and psychological safety to bring your full self to work and and make those contributions uh, to to the workplace. Um, this is alas rare, right? It's it's or or maybe not you know not rare like an asteroid, but but rare in the sense of it's not the norm. The norm in most organizations is just an almost a taken for granted understanding that I can't speak up with anything even potentially you know threatening or that might make me look bad. You know my job is just to look good at all times, which of course nothing could be further from the truth. So. But you're right. Um, I think what makes the book come alive are the stories. Yeah. And the, the you know the middle of the book, sort of the four chapters in the middle. It's eight chapters, are just full of stories, cases, and and half the first two chapters are the negative, and the second two chapters in that four chapter block are the positive. And uh, although harder to find, they are they are inspiring. They are wonderful, and they they range from you know the manufacturing. Um, you know, sort of uh, industrial equipment company, Barry yeah. Waymiller, um, that uh, has just um, done an extraordinary job of creating a culture where people are empowered, you know, to, to, to do major decision making from, you know, capital, capital expenditures. You know, the CEO's understanding is they know they know the materials they need better than I do. They know the new equipment they need better than I do. Um, these are trustworthy adults. Their their families trust them to you know be members of households and so forth. And and then they come you know many companies you come to work and suddenly you're treated as a child. Um, and and they they um, they've been remarkably successful, right? And and including through downturns in the economy. Uh, and more by creating this kind of environment where people know to be direct, know to be candid, are empowered with lots of important decisions, and and truly care yeah. uh, about each other. Well, the thing that struck me about Bob Chapman, and you allude to this in your book, and we t- we talked about this. He, this was like four or five years ago. I had him on, but I, I vividly remember this because he he talked about he thought the key to his success was was having this level of, of vulnerability and honesty and he worked mm. at it so intentionally. He said that was the thing that he focused on all the time. Uh. Everything he tried to do is, is this level of vulnerability and honesty. 
And that really is the key to kind of breaking through some of the negative examples that you see in the book. You know, you talk about Volkswagen, you know, kind of adhering to their strict, you know, their their um, reputation of a, this engineering culture, which on the surface, yeah, that sounds great, but it kind of allowed it to we can't deviate from it. So let's kind of sweep it under the rug. And, you know, eventually you get this slow fade and all of a sudden you got this, this major crisis on your hands, right? The story, you know, the Volkswagen story is a classic one of, and you mentioned engineering and, and, you know, both of us are very big fans of engineering, right? Right, When you fly airplanes, they're, they're, they're marvels of, of exquisite engineering. And um, I, but what we know about engineering is we want it to be absolutely right. And that's good. And that precision and that care is mission critical. And when you're talking about engineering new products, right? So anytime you're talking about research and development, you're talking about new territory. And anytime we're in new territory, things by definition will go wrong along the way because we don't know at the outset what's going to work and what isn't like we, R&D is done through experimentation. So the Volkswagen story to me is really one of senior leadership mixing up their desire, their ambition, you know, their desire for, you know, a fantastic best in class vehicle that of course was congruent with regulatory standards and you know they put they put a line in the sand. They said it must do this. But unfortunately, the engineering reality wouldn't let it do that. Right. You know, and then rather than simply say so, you know, the engineers on the front lines of this project felt it impossible to say so. And so what they did instead, of course, is famously, um, was design software to cheat the regulators. Yeah. You know, and there's a certain part of me that has empathy for those engineers right imagine what it must feel like to come somehow to the conclusion that it's a more viable option to develop software to cheat the regulators than to tell your boss the truth yeah that can't feel good right that must be enormously difficult somewhat like flying into a mountain because you can't tell the captain um he's doing the wrong thing right um and 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 like all untruths or illusions of performance, eventually it will come to light. It just will. Sometimes it takes an awfully long time. But in the case of VW, of course, it did come to light and came crashing down. And it's obvious that that outcome is so much worse than, you know, had we had they caught it and didn't did the respectful candor in the first place. Yeah, but it, it, it's amazing, right? When you're in the middle of it, it's 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 a slow fade, though. And like when you're looking at it individually mm. their, their individual lives and what they're faced up against right and that's true and you kind of yeah it never you know you, you sort of take it one day at a time and you keep yeah. pushing uh, into the future hoping that you'll pull a rabbit out of a hat somehow it's kind of like the same situation you see with the 737 max thing with boeing it's kind of a similar right and it's like the, right. with, with the pressure of competition from airbus and like well we got to we we don't have time to do a clean sheet design let's just go and let's you know we right. don't have to, we have to and, do and i've written about boeing a little bit on uh, digital articles on on hbr um, online and 
so it's all from public sources. I haven't done my own original research there, but there's enough in the long the, the long articles and so on that are out there to to see very clearly a culture in which it was not psychologically safe enough to speak up about problems. And you know, as a pilot, that must give you chills because yeah, it does. Uh, it really, yeah. you know, to be blunt, pissed us off. You know, because we were <laughs> like, you right. know, my goodness, you know. But it, to be respectfully it, candid, yes, yeah. absolutely. But it's no, and go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, well, you. I was just going to say that those are to me the VW example and the Boeing example. It shows how that lack of psychological safety, right. It creates an illusion of success. Like the the people at the top probably just felt like things were going swimmingly. Exactly, because that's all they're hearing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's uh, they've got big smiles on their face in the in the executive suites because none of that real news is making its way up. And you know, I call this whole phenomenon, and it includes, and they write about it in the book, the Wells Fargo debacle, you know, VW, and now more more recently Boeing. And this is a category I call stretch goals and closed ears. Right? <laughs> yeah. and, and stretch goals means we're ambitious. You know, we want to mm -hmm. create that next best airplane, that next best vehicle. Um, you know, we want to be the the most respected and biggest bank in the the nation, or what have you. And I, you know, I'm a fan of ambition. I really um, applaud people who want to do things. Uh, that are hard and haven't been done before, right? I'm, I'm on the sidelines cheering. And yet, if you want to have stretch goals, and I hope you do, then you need to have open ears and yeah. you need to go out of your way to have open ears. You, you know, you might, you might assume, well, I, I've got open ears, but it's not really true unless they know you have open ears. And in all of the companies we've just been talking about, it turned out that people you know, in the ranks, absolutely did not believe it was possible to speak up about the truth. Yeah, you, you raise a great point because I've seen this in, in my time in the corporate arena and I've worked for some – and I'm with you. I'm, I'm all about let's achieve the impossible. Let's set high expectations. Let's set standards that no one else mm. is doing. I'm all for that. But I think I've seen, I've seen a lot of times where people um, – I mean, I'd call them poor managers. They they kind of mm -hmm. substituted or equated this kind of pursuit of high expectations that meant good management. That all they had to do was stand up there and go, "No, I don't want to hear it. We can get it done." Right? I've worked with a right. few guys like that, and it's impossible. Right. And and I'm all for it. But you got to. And I love how you said, you know, it's kind of the pursuit of the of this high standards simultaneous with having open ears, and and that's the part that people miss a lot of times is the open ears well, part. You know, management, you know, in the industrial era, let's say a long time ago, you could get away with saying, here's the goal, here's the deliverables, you know, and you've done the, you know, you've done the measures and the studies to know it's feasible to do it. And it's, it's routine. It's, it's demonstrably feasible to do it. And you want people to work hard. So you can sort of get away with that old fashioned, I'm not a fan of it, but, you know, get this done or else. But to to imagine that that strategy works for knowledge work is ludicrous. Right? It, does, it just doesn't work because if something requires creativity or ingenuity or teamwork to get it done, fear-based, you know, demands are not going to 
enable any of those things to be possible. Amen to that. And I think it's that whole byproduct of that, like you said, that whole kind of Frederick Winslow Taylor scientific management theory that kind of came yep. out of the industrial revolution right. where you know, workers and management are separate and the manager's job was to find the one right way because there is a right way and it's mm -hmm. the worker's job to execute my brilliant plan. And that's we still see that you know, today, even though it's largely debunked and it certainly is, to your point, doesn't work in mm -hmm. solutions or products that demand tremendous amount of collaboration. And, you know, you couldn't have gone to the moon with a Frederick Wenzel Taylor mindset. You just couldn't, you know, you, right. you had to. Right. Oh, not, yeah. The opposite. All right. Yeah. So in order for the Frederick Taylor mindset, Taylor mindset to work, the tasks need to be feasible. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't, you know, not with, not, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to pull it off, right? It has to be feasible. It has to be objectively measurable. I can see whether it was done or not. And it has to be individual. Right? And and then, you know, if you've got those three features in place, you can have a kind of command and control style right? and make it work. If any one of those things are violated to any degree, you you can't and and you need this very different style of of um, emphasizing purpose and ensuring voice and speaking up and nowadays you know a, a very small subset of the workforce have work like that yeah that meaning that narrow objectively measured individually accomplished feasible uh, you know simple tasks so what do we do then for the listeners out there that I mean we we can all We've all been a part of those organizations in those times where it didn't feel safe to speak up. We can all we all have stories of where we said, "God, I wish I would have said something," and and hopefully nothing too disastrous happened. But everybody mm -hmm. know has a story like that where they should have spoke up and they didn't. Exactly. What can we do, uh, particularly if we're in the middle of the organization? What are some of the things that we can do? Maybe I'm managing a small team. I've got five, ten people. How can I do to start ref? What can I do to start to reframe the kind of mindset and start planting the seeds to, to to affect the change? Because this is a marathon. This doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, and and that's it's it's actually a it's a great question. It's one of my favorite questions because, um, and and in part because of the, the you you emphasize leadership and I write about leadership and and people can walk away with the impression well. I, you know, I'm not the CEO or I'm not the pilot, so there's nothing I can do and nothing could be further from the truth. Right. Um, in fact, there are things any one of us can do. And oddly, they're not all that different uh, in terms of the concept. They're just, they can manifest differently, right? And 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 so the things that I talk about are, uh, for, for leaders or anyone, are setting the stage, inviting engagement and responding productively. And setting the stage is is really about reminding us of what we're up against or characterizing the work. Like I just was, we were just talking about how some work is simple and individual and objectively measured, you know, and some work is, is complex and novel and collaborative. And the degree to which we're all on the same page in recognizing that what we're doing is say novel and complex and collaborative goes a long way toward making in a sense, a rational case for voice. Like, why should I take the effort to speak up or the, the risk of speaking up if there's no real logical point to it? But if I, if I remind us that what we're doing just has lots of 
complexities and uncertainties. What I'm saying is any one of us might see something that could make a big difference. Right. And, and so that's kind of painting, you know, the picture of the territory. And the second thing is, is inviting engagement, which really means simply, you know, asking questions, right. And, and, and by the way, listening to the answers, what do you see out there? Um, What do you, what, um, what might, what might we try here with this project to take it in a different direction? And by asking a question, you are giving someone, by definition, you're giving someone an opportunity for voice. And, and then finally responding productively, which is essentially, as we were talking about before, you know, thank you. And uh, how can I help? Or what ideas do you have? Right. So a, a sort of a forward looking and appreciative forward looking response is a productive response. Now, those things I just said, you can see how they might have an outsized impact when the boss is doing them. However, any one of us can do any one of those things and make a difference in our team or our workplace, right? We can, we're, we're just in a, either a smaller or larger way, helping to shape a climate that's learning oriented, that's appreciative, that's, you know, that's, that's eager to, uh, to get it right and get it right by, by working together. I love that. And you're absolutely right. The influence that we have within the middle of organization, I mean, sometimes, particularly if we're in a dysfunctional organization where the senior leadership seemingly doesn't seem to get it, um, Mm. or it is somewhat dysfunctional, you can still have an impact. And I would argue that, that a lot of times that's where it needs to begin. Uh, it doesn't mean it's easy, but if we can plant those seeds from the middle and below, you'd be surprised at how much influence or impact it can make. Because I would contend that if I work for you and I've got a team of four, those four people that work for me, I have way more influence over those four on a day-to-day basis than you do, even though you're running the organization. And Absolutely. I, and I no, think- in fact, the data speak to that very directly. Well, one extremely robust finding in organization after organization, whether it's a hospital or a manufacturing company is that there are stark differences in psychological safety across groups within the same organization. So what that means is, yes, the top has an impact, but that is an impact that is profoundly mitigated by the folks in the middle. Right. Yeah. I love how you framed the um, kind of the three things that what can we do and it certainly resonates with me as a pilot. We, I mean, we do this every every flight, right? You know, where we're setting the stage. But I think it's mm-hmm. it goes back to the point where we're kind of talking about the intent or or kind of painting the picture of mm-hmm. being part of something bigger than than ourselves. And even if you're an accounting firm or you're manufacturing some silly toy that doesn't that in the grand scheme of thing isn't changing the world but you can kind of frame it and like what are we doing here and always framing it towards setting the stage mm-hmm. of why this is important the lives that are at stake that's what yeah. kind of what i meant when i earlier said that i wish people would kind of treat this as a life and death type thing because right. lives are at stake yeah it's so important you don't need to be you know in the military no. or in healthcare to be doing something that's deeply purposeful years ago i studied a, a very impressive transformation program at a, at a company and that company made mattresses, right? So, you know, nothing could seem a little, you know, more, forgive me, sleepy or, <laughs> right. you know, like just a job, the like I go boring. in and yeah, I, you right. know, go to the factory and I make mattresses. 
and yet the the, the CEO went out of his way to um, emphasize a kind of really really meaningful purpose, um, which is that we we um, we help people. What was it like? Get a a good night's sleep to realize their daytime dreams, right? right. And it was. You know, and he'd say it all the time. And it was when you think about it, yeah, you know, those those mattresses that we're cranking out are going into people's homes and helping them sleep and wake up refreshed and wake up able uh, to make their mark in the world. It's kind of like my favorite story I heard from the NASA days. I remember talking to had Gene Krantz on the show. who was one of the flight directors for oh, NASA yes. during. Oh yes, I'm a big know, fan. Yeah, and uh, he we were talking, and he said. You know, there was the, kind of that famous story of the janitor that worked there, kind of a, a, right. a namesake. And he said, what do you do? And he's like, I'm helping people get to the moon, you know, and he's just cleaning, emptying trash cans, right? But he saw right. that his purpose was my little piece of it. You know, I keep this place clean so that these engineers and everybody else can. Right. And it's exactly what you said. That's really important because it's not just, okay, I work here and that's what those guys are doing. So therefore, I'm I'm doing that too. It's It's much it's it's much more nuanced than that. I mean, they for that to really work and not be just a line, those janitors needed to understand, and it turns out they did, that by keeping the place clean and, you know, you're creating the environment where those brilliant engineers can do their work and they're not tripping over stuff and, right. you know, they're not they're not hampered by the mess. And so they, they really are as important a part of the team as anyone else. Yeah. And then the inviting engagement or participation piece, I think, is crucial too. It's setting up, like, how do you get people in? That I think that is a primary, certainly something you should be intentionally thinking about all the time. Is like, how do I get these people engaged? And I think it has a lot to do with um, kind of creating an environment of curiosity, of of authenticity. That's what, to me. That's where the mm-hmm. authenticity, the mm-hmm. vulnerability comes in. You know, the asking questions, yeah. encouraging people to ask why. You know, it's not your right to challenge; it's your obligation. Those are things that I tell people when I'm briefing them to go fly that I've never flown with them before. Mm. I said, "Look, it's not your right to challenge; it's your obligation. You are obligated." Yes, to tell. And me. that's a really important mm-hmm. frame. I mean, that's that's basically a reframe because when you just say, "Gee, you know, I want you to challenge." Yeah, sure you do, right? But if if you really say no, you know, it's 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 not a choice, it's not a right, it's an obligation. That's a complete reframe. Yeah. And I will be more disappointed with you if you don't, you know what I mean, right. if I come to find out. Right. Right. Yeah. And then the respondent productivity, we talked a little bit about that too about how particularly if you're the leader and someone does have the courage to speak up, how you respond in that moment is so critical. You know, that will reframe the rest of the the story, yeah. the meeting, the the year, the quarter, whatever. How you respond to that, you know, that brand new employee that's like, hey, I've got an idea, or excuse me, sir, you know, how you respond to that is gonna set the stage. And and have a long impact. And you know, long a impact. lasting impact. Yeah. Yep. I love all of that. Yeah, I just I think your book, um, the fearless organization is just should be mandatory reading for any leader, aspiring leader, because it, it gets into the the mindset of why it's so difficult. Particularly as an aviator, I've seen mishaps, and you just you shake your head, and it's like why they're they were willing to fly into the terra firma instead of speaking up. I mean, time and time again, that psychological power is so powerful. You know, right? It's beyond. You know, it's it's truly beyond belief. Yeah. 
What's next for you? I mean, I mean, are you get a new book? I mean, I'm sort of, we're sitting in the, well, the COVID crisis. We're reframing everything, and what, what's you know, what's two, on the horizon? Two things, uh, you know. I, I don't. I do have in the back of my mind a new book percolating, but it's not. It's it's um, not even a sentence is written. So let's um, you know let's let's not get carried away yet on that one. Um, but meanwhile, with all of the you know, the, the challenges that we're all facing with the COVID crisis, I believe there, unfortunately, are going to be some very real opportunities for research um, on who didn't speak up when and why yeah. and how, you know, and, 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 the, and the leadership um, stumbles that we've been witnessing all over the place. I, I think there's going to be some, some interesting work to do there. I don't want to turn my whole uh, program over to it, but I do think it's going to be very interesting and, and we'll, we'll learn a lot from it. You know, I was thinking about that too, even in the context of, of revisiting your, your book and just kind of thinking about the current crisis. I mean, there has to be, an, and I've, and in, there's been circles where I've seen people speaking up and people been dismissed. There's already some, some of that's kind of already percolating out. Um, right. Uh, it just speaks to a whole, there's a whole nother episode talking about, you know, the current leadership of, just genuine Ooh. politics and media culture and everything else and how that kind of makes everything so mm. backwards from a leadership front, you know? And I've had many yeah. people talk just recently, some people, just, I, I just don't know where the, the real genuine authentic leadership is. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, where's we, we, who is, uh, you know, setting the stage and inviting input and responding productively mm -hmm. on the, on the national stage, it's it's um, it's it's not clear it's happening at the level it needs to. Yeah, it's yeah. That's why I've I haven't watched a lot of news over the last year. I've started to turn it off because it's psychologically not making my space safe. It's like I don't have a psychological yeah. space safe space safe space at home because of of I just got to get away from it for a while. Yeah, and it's, it, I think that's understandable, especially because there's not much each of us can do and it gets so frustrating to yeah not be able to do the things we want to do to help well how can people get in touch with you i mean i'll certainly have links to all your work in your book i mean i encourage everyone to check out uh, amy's stuff and fearless organization again is is to me dose of leadership stamp of approval is mandatory reading i i think everybody who's aspiring to be a leader should 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 this should be a go-to because it, it gets into the the psychology and everything that I talk about on the show and I promote decentralized, my whole thing is deep is promoting the decentralized culture, you know, creating those, mm. those cultures where you push the leadership accountability to the lowest levels and the higher levels are focusing on intent and communicating why maniacally communicating what we're trying to accomplish and why that's, that's my whole big thing. And, and fearless organization feeds into all of that. And um, I think it's Thank just you. a great piece of work. Thank you. Well, you know, they can, people can go to the HBS, hbs.edu website and find my faculty page and uh, see a list of other things. But I agree with you. I think the fearless organization is the best place to start. I, I worked hard to put everything I, I knew about this topic in, in, in one readable book. Yeah. Again, it's one of my favorites. So, so great job. Thanks for coming on the show, Amy. It's just been a true pleasure. I hope to continue this conversation again. I'm so honored to have you in the dose of leadership circle and and uh, i hope we can continue this conversation at a future date well i'm honored to be a part of it and i'd love to thanks for coming on thank you 
Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose of Leadership brings to your world. Go to doseofleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.